Hello there, Chicago sports fans, and welcome to the final episode of Chicago Sports HQ Chatter for the 2020 calendar year. Joined, as always, by Cole Little. And Cole, how was your Christmas and any plans for New Year's? My Christmas was pretty good. I hope yours was good as well. Um, New Year's, just going to watch my Tigers. You know, it's, it's the number one plan right now. Yeah, Christmas went well. I've had to shovel eight inches of snow the last two days. Oh. And now we have uh, more snow coming Thursday night into Friday. Mm. So, yeah, winter finally got here after deciding it didn't want to show up for about a month and a half. Yeah. I don't envy you, man. That's something I've never had to experience. <laughs> well, you need to experience it once. So just make a trip north, and then you can enjoy it for like two days yeah. and then go back home. Yeah, all right. But we're going to start the show today with uh, the Chicago Cubs and basically picking my words very carefully and very, very wisely at this point. It seems like they have no desire to even try to win the division this year. It seems they have no desire to attempt to put a competitive team on the field at this point. Um, we're going to start with the U Darvish trade yesterday and then kind of walk into possibly what's going on with Wilson Contreras. But you and I talked about this uh, when the trade actually happened, and neither one of us understand why the deal was made, especially when you consider how many openings the Cubs have in their rotation right now. And taking Darvish out and replacing him with Davies really I don't think was the answer for it. And the four prospects they're getting in return are so young and so far away. This is one of those trades where you're not going to see who really won this trade for the next five or six years. And in five or six years, guys like Rizzo and Baez and Happ and Hayward and Hendricks probably aren't even going to be on the team anymore. Yes, yeah, it's, it's incredibly disappointing. Um, I mean, throughout Epstein's tenure, there wasn't a single deal that he made that I found to be this you know, utterly inexplicable and disappointing. So with that being said, it's, I mean, it's kind of a rough start to the Hoyer tenure um, in charge. And, you know, now, at least now we have a better understanding of why Epstein changed his mind and decided to move on because it looks like the, you know, the direction that the front office and ownership is wanting to go in is, is, totally or not necessarily totally but you know is different than what Epstein wanted it seems like they're going more abruptly into a rebuild rebuild right away as opposed to kind of you know making some moves this offseason to still be competitive but set themselves up to be able to you know make more major changes next fall and just retool rather than rebuild but yeah, that's an incredibly disappointing move. I mean, and you touched on it, you know, not only just the fact that they traded Darvish, you know, who's arguably been one of the top five pitchers in baseball since the 2019 All-Star break, um, but, you know, what they got in return and, and also trading away Caratini as well, who they had under contract for a good while longer and, Obviously, he brings a lot to the table as a switch hitter who can play 
multiple positions, um, you know, and, and could potentially be Contreras as a replacement. But anyway, you know, with moving those guys and getting in return, you know, nothing particularly special, uh, including Davies, you know, and then the prospects, um, nothing noteworthy. It's uh, incredibly disappointing, and it really just seems like it was a move that's, you know, reminiscent of, of a rebuild when a team just, you know, wants to shed salary and get rid of veteran uh, notable veteran players, you know, who are uh, taking up a big spot on the payroll and then just, you know, trying to cut, cut, uh, yeah, cut payroll, cut salary down. And, you know, that's, that's all that move really seems to be to me. I mean, you know, at least in the long run, um, because I don't, I don't know what they really gain from it, the Cubs, that is. And, yeah, it's just remarkably disappointing. And then, you know, if the World Series window wasn't already shut, I mean, I think that pretty much shut it, as well as the other stuff we're hearing about what they're, you know, what Hoyer's trying to, to do this offseason. You know, it, it makes it say that the World Series window is shut until further notice. Yeah, and – if Darvish was going to get dealt, you knew Caratini was going to follow, mainly because right. Caratini's become more of his personal catcher. So, I mean, in that sense, it is what it is. I understand, you know, the whole salary dump side of things, but I think there was, I think there was other players on that roster that you could have focused on more, mainly because pitching was not the problem with the Cubs last year. Their starting pitching, for the most part, was what kept them in ball games and their starting pitching ultimately is what won them the division and won them the division and not the hitting. So I guess if you're going to trade somebody like Darvish, the prospects, the prospects situation is touchy just because San Diego gave up a lot better prospects to get Blake Snell. So they kind of were in a position where you knew yeah. the Cubs weren't going to get maybe like a top 10 prospect like people wanted but at least get some sort of pitching prospect in return instead of two shortstops and a third shortstop converted outfielder. I mean, the Cubs already have a plethora of shortstops in the farm system as it is. So unless you plan to field an entire team of nine shortstops, some of these shortstops are eventually going to get traded for different options down the road. And if some of the people they just picked up in this Darvish trade end up getting traded a few years from now to get pitching help or hitting help or whatever the plan is, this trade ends up being a complete waste for the Cubs. And basically it ended up helping San Diego now and does what for Chicago down the road? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, certainly a lot of question marks surrounding it. And yeah, you mentioned Snell, uh, Padres, Padres trading for Blake Snell. I mean, I like probably a lot of other people, you know, breathe the sigh of relief after the Snell news was announced because, you know, it seemed like, well, that's their ace pitcher they wanted to, you know, add to that already stacked rotation. So now they'll leave Darvish alone. But um, clearly the Padres weren't done. But, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's just incredibly disappointing for a number of reasons and, you know, this for me, I mean, and I've talked about this in previous episodes, 
Um, it, to me, it just seemed like the, you know, the, the best plan of action for Hoyer and the front office moving forward was to really build around Darvish and Hendricks. I mean, cause you know, like you said, it wasn't like, you know, stuff pitching was the, yeah, go ahead. And if you look at like what a lot of the aces are making in the league, like guys like Garrett Cole, right, yeah, Scherzer, Strasburg, yeah. Darvish is a bargain right. for what these ace pitchers are making. And yes, he might be three, four, five years older than what these pitchers are. Yeah. But for the cost that he's getting paid, he's coming at a bargain price. So it's not like he was breaking the bank to sit there. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so to me, it, I mean, it really seemed like the three kind of untouchables were, you know, Darvish and Hendricks for obvious reasons, because how great they've been, you know, at least since the um, latter half of the 2019 season through the end of 2020. And then, you know, Rizzo for at least for a time being, because he's a de facto leader and whatnot, but, you know, really it seemed like anybody else was, was up for grabs, even, you know, Baez, who we both agree they should hang on to. But still, I, I just wasn't – It looks like they will now, but – Yeah, it just – you know, I just wasn't expecting – even when I first heard the initial rumors about, well, you know, they're maybe shopping Darvish. I mean, you think it would take like a king's ransom for them to – for Hoyer to move on from him. But, yeah, it's just stunning. And, it and you know, it, it really does seem like it's – Hoyer trying to kind of insert his will and and just sort of reset, um, which is, you know, this is a conversation for another day. But I find a lot of the kind of rebuilding efforts in Major League Baseball to be sort of ineffective a lot of times. I just it seems like a lot of rebuilds are, are so oriented around like well we gotta tear it all down and start from the ground up and i just i don't know i I hope that's not the the plan of action that hoyer's looking to carry out between you know this offseason and and the end of next offseason yeah um we're gonna go back to wilson Contreras now for a second and now it appears like the Cubs are not only willing to shop Wilson Contreras, but it seems like they're actively listening to offers at this point. When the offseason started, Contreras was kind of the one name outside of Chris Bryant that you continued to hear about a player potentially being traded, mainly because he still has two or three years of team control left and given his value what he would bring back to the table. As much as I would hate to see him go, I was more on board to see him get traded, knowing the return that he would get. But now that Caratini's been traded, if Wilson Contreras honestly gets traded, what are the plans for the Cubs in terms of catcher? Because Miguel Amaya is nowhere near ready to come up and catch now. And if the Cubs are not going to be getting a catcher in return for Contreras – do you see them getting another basically what I want to call a crap package in return for Contreras? Because now that team saw what the Cubs got in return for Darvish, they're going to be calling Hoyer and asking about basically every player on that roster, mm-hmm. considering that the Cubs might be treating this like a salary dump. Yeah. I mean, that may very well be what it's going to be. It's going to be similar to the Darvish trade. And, you know, they'll just look to add some veteran 
you know, 30-something-year-old catcher off the free agent market who can fill the void uh, next year and, and just kind of look to reset at that position or, or wait on Amaya or, or whatever they're going to do. But, yeah, I mean, you know, we'll have to see. We'll have to see what they're – what Hoyer's plans are regarding Contreras and Brian, if he's going to be more patient and maybe wait till the trade deadline or, or something. But yeah, I mean, if, if, you know, I I can imagine if they're going to look to get rid of Contreras um, now that Caratini's gone, then that will signal that this really is like a, a rapid fire, you know, rebuild of sorts and that, yeah, I, I can just, like I said, I can just expect them to, you know, just sign a, a veteran, maybe semi-washed-up catcher to fill the void and, and just move on at retooling in that at that position. Yeah, and the thing that I guess scares me the most, it's not really that scares me the most, but Zach Davies is – obviously a household name with Cubs fans given that he pitched with the Brewers for three or four years and he's not a terrible pitcher. I mean, his career record is like, a, I think he's 50 and 35 or 50 and 36 with like an ERA in the three, six or three, seven range. Yeah. So he's not a terrible pitcher, but I see him more as a back of the rotation type of starter, possibly a middle of the rotation type of starter, depending on what team he's on. But now he's got to come to Chicago and instantly be the team's number two starter. So not only do you have Davies and Hendricks, but you have Alec Mills and Adbert Elzele as your four guaranteed starters right now. Three of those four starters rank in the bottom five in Major League Baseball in average fastball velocity. That's the part to me that scares me the most with this rotation is not only do they have unproven guys like Mills and Elzele that they're going to be counting on to give them 25 to 30 starts if there's a full season, but you have three guys in that rotation that barely hit 88 miles per hour with their fastball. And if their location is not on point, they're going to get shelled. Right. Yeah. And, you know, as for Davies, I mean, he had occasional flashes of brilliance with the, I mean, brilliance might be an exaggeration, but, you know, he looked good at times as a brewer and looked terrible at other times and, you know, was hit or miss and, had stretches where he was great, stretches where he was dismal, and, you know, kind of rebounded as, as a Padre this year. Um, you know, went seven and four, which for the obviously for the condensed season was was pretty solid to get seven wins. But yeah, I mean, you know, that he's obviously a, a far cry from Darvish. And yeah, I mean, that's that's a rotation that's set up to certainly experienced his fair share of troubles. I mean, I, you know, needless to say, Hendricks is going to be looked at as the workhorse through and through the linchpin of that rotation. Um, and you got to wonder what their plans are with potentially bringing back Lester or if for one year, or if he would even want to come back for a year and, and be a part of something that resembles a rebuild. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the, certainly some some daunting question marks uh, regarding that, you know, rotation as it looks now. But again, I mean, when you trade, you know, arguably one of the top five or six starting pitchers 
from, you know, at least in terms of performance since uh, last year's all-star break. I mean, that's naturally going to be what, what comes with it is plenty of, plenty of questions. Yeah. And another last thing I'm going to say quick before we switch topics here is Davies is only on a one year contract as it is. And I think he's getting paid $8 million, which obviously that's a lot of money, but for, considering what a lot of other players make, it's not a lot. And the way I see this is I think it's going to be similar to what 2014 with Jason Hamill, where they're hoping that Davies has a good three months, three and a half months, and then they can flip him at the deadline for potential prospects in return. Davies isn't going to bring you anything spectacular. So again, not only did you trade Darvish for four prospects that are going to be ready four or five years down the road, but if you ultimately get rid of Davies by the trade deadline, you basically gave Darvish away for nothing, plus you're paying some of Darvish's salary. Yeah, yeah. good point. But, yeah, we'll switch over to the Chicago Bears now. And, well, the Bears, I guess, can say they got what they wanted. Uh, they took care of the Jacksonville Jaguars last week in dominating fashion, which I think most – experts and fans expected them to do even though Jacksonville has played better as of late but they also got a lot of help from the San Francisco 49ers knocking off the Arizona Cardinals which gives the Bears the seventh spot in the postseason right now and Chicago is basically one win away from making the postseason but they do have the Green Bay Packers standing in their way heading into the game this weekend I actually thought the Packers had home field advantage clinched, so I did not expect the starters to play more than a half, which is kind of why I gave the advantage to the Bears. But now I found out that if Seattle, Green Bay, and New Orleans end up with the same record, head-to-head matchups get thrown out the window, so then the Packers basically need to win to clinch home field because if they lose, they don't get home field. And if Chicago loses, they need Arizona to lose to get that seven seed, and with Jared Goff out with a broken thumb. I don't see Arizona losing to the Rams this weekend. Just thoughts on the Bears' performance last week against Jacksonville, and do you think the Bears can continue playing the way they played the last month against Green Bay and getting into the postseason, or do you expect Green Bay to take care of business and then the Bears basically need to hope and a prayer that the Rams can knock off Arizona? Well, first of all, as far as – for the performance against the Jaguars. Uh, yet another great offensive performance. Obviously, Jaguars are terrible, um, set to pick number one overall. So that was expected that the Bears would win comfortably in that one, and they did. Um, a great second-half performance, which was nice to see. I mean, they didn't come out sluggish at a halftime, really took it to Jacksonville in the second half and pulled away. Trubisky looked good. Of course, Allen Robinson, a former Jaguar, and and you know he played really well. And you know Jimmy Graham got involved, caught a couple of touchdowns. Montgomery continued to make an impact. So, yeah, great offensive performance, and they kept it rolling. Um, with that being said, obviously these you know this three game win win streak that the Bears are on, the three teams that have been beaten, you know, certainly aren't. Um, anything worth writing home about, uh, you know, Houston, Minnesota, and and Jacksonville. Um, but, you know, with that being said, 
the Bears offenses look great. It's obviously been clicking since really late in the um, loss to Green Bay earlier in the season. Trubisky's first game back in the starting lineup. And it hasn't really skipped much of a beat since then. Uh, as far as whether or not I expect it to continue performing at that level against Green Bay this weekend, considering Green Bay is going to have home field advantage on the line. Uh, I expect there to be, you know, a little bit of a setback. I mean, more so I think the defense, the Chicago defense is really going to have his hands full. Obviously, you know, Chicago played probably, I think it's safe to say, his worst defensive game of the season and the loss to the Packers previously at Lambeau. Um, of course, this one this weekend's at Soldier Field, but I still expect the Bears defense to struggle. And, um, you know, if the Bears are able to come away with the win, that would be huge. I'm not exactly holding my breath. You know, they're, I mean, honestly, the number one thing they might need to hope for is that, you know, Kyler Murray, who's who's banged up, who got hurt on the very last play of the game against the 49ers, over the weekend, um, that he's not able to go for the Cardinals or, or at the very least he's he's limited in what he can do and his mobility, which of course is a huge part of his game, and he's not as effective because the Bears might really, really need um, the Cardinals to lose to the Rams. And, you know, the Rams are already going to have a backup quarterback in there. So, you know, with Kyler Murray playing at relatively full strength, um, the chances of the Rams getting a win in that one are slim to none. So that may be the Bears' best hope is that, you know, the Kyler Murray can't play or is really limited, and that opens the door for the Rams. Because, you know, of course, if the Bears win, I mean, they control their own destiny, so if they win, they're in. But uh, I'm just not really banking on it. Yeah, I think it's going to be a much better game than the first time, obviously. I do have the Packers winning. I think I have them winning 27-20 to 20 or 28-21. I can't remember what I exactly have in my um, story that I have coming up. Um, the Cardinal one is the interesting one, and if Murray plays – I do expect the Cardinals to win, but at the same time, the Rams have a very good defense, and if anyone can get the most out of a backup quarterback, I think Sean McVay can. So that game itself will be interesting and enough. But let's just say the Bears win or lose, and they make the playoffs either way or they miss the playoffs. Do you think Mitch Trubisky has done enough to – earn at least a one-year contract next year to get a full year to work with Laser, Or do you think the Bears are going to move on from him, from Nagy, and basically try to start fresh again? Yeah, I think he's done enough. I mean, of course, they're not going to have really a good enough draft position to be able to focus on, you know, drafting a, a franchise quarterback anyway. So, yeah, I, I think he's done enough to at least earn a one-year deal and get to work with Laser for a full year because I mean I think it's you know it's looking more and more like the ultimate problem for all the Chicago's offensive woes was Nagy be you know having control over the offensive schematics if you will over the the play calling um 
you know, and and ever since Lazor's, you know, been calling the plays, it's it's been like night and day, uh, you know, and and I mean, not to mention Trubisky's played significantly better than what we saw from Foles, but yeah, I mean, it would be nice to maybe see those two get to work together for a full year to see what Trubisky's really capable of. Um, yeah, I mean, I think he's certainly done enough to at least earn a, a one-year prove-it deal, and maybe he can compete with another quarterback again, you know, whether it's Foles or, or someone else for the starting job. Um, but yeah, I, I think it would be worth the Bears' while to look to bring him back uh, on a on a short-term deal. I agree. I think they should bring him back at least on a one-year deal, especially if Laser sticks around. If it comes down to it where a new president does come in and a new president wants to switch things up, as odd as it sounds, I would love to see Ryan Fitzpatrick come to Chicago for one year, have the Bears draft a rookie quarterback in the draft this year and kind of sit him behind Fitzpatrick for a year similar to what the Dolphins have done with Tua. And if you watch the game last Saturday and how Tua struggled, Ryan Fitzpatrick comes in and flat out dominates the Raiders. And that's kind of what Brian Flores has done all season where Tua is his guy, but he's also not afraid to kind of change things up and go with Ryan Fitzpatrick. I would kind of like to see the Bears do something like that, but Something we'll discuss later when we obviously figure out what Chicago's plans are this offseason. But sticking with football, we got two college teams set to play on New Year's Day. Uh, We'll start with Northwestern, who takes on Auburn in the Citrus Bowl on Friday. The game schedules a kickoff at 12 o'clock. Northwestern played Ohio State very tough last time out. And I think they surprised not only me and you, but they surprised a lot of the people that thought Ohio State was just going to come in and roll all over Northwestern, where you have Auburn, who is – I don't know who their coach is going to be this week, considering how they did fire their head coach following their last game of the season. So that's going to be something to watch this week as well. Uh, What are your kind of thoughts and predictions of how that game is going to go between Northwestern and Auburn this week? Yeah, so I believe Auburn is going to go with their interim coach, Kevin Steele, the defensive coordinator. Um, But, yeah, right now they're in the transition period between Gus Malzahn, who got fired, and uh, Brian Harson, who's coming from Boise State, the new head coach. And, yeah, I mean – you know, I don't know how motivated or, or you know, necessarily eager that Auburn is going to be for that game. I mean, they had a pretty disappointing, underwhelming season. Um, certainly, you know, we're looking to play in a New Year's Bowl game or, or a game around New Year's, but something maybe bigger than the Citrus Bowl. But, yeah, I mean – you know, with Bo Nix and, and the high-powered offense that they have, um, it's, you know, Northwestern is certainly going to have its work cut out for them. But um, I expect Northwestern to show up ready to go, ready to cap off a season, you know, that, that 
an impressive season, a memorable season for that program. They'll, they'll be looking to cap it off with a statement win. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, it might be a, a sort of testament to which team really wants it more. And I expect Northwestern to be, you know, naturally more motivated uh, to win this game. But, you know, it it's should be a fun, fun battle for sure. And then right after that game concludes, or roughly around the same time that that game concludes, you have one of the college football playoff games set to take place between number one, Alabama, and number four, Notre Dame. Uh, Notre Dame suffered their first loss of the year in the ACC championship game to Clemson and was thoroughly dominated in every facet by Clemson. And now they get an Alabama offense, which I have – I have no idea if you were a defensive coordinator or a head coach how you can even plan to stop this Alabama offense at this point. As good as Notre Dame has played this season and considering how bad they did look against Clemson, I'm expecting this game to be over by halftime. I I hate to say it, but I don't think Notre Dame stands any real chance to be able to go toe-to-toe with Alabama. Yeah, it might be over you know, by the end of the first quarter. Um, yeah, I, I certainly don't have any kind of high expectations for this. You know, Notre Dame should maybe just, you know, feel fortunate to be in that position, if you will, because, you know, they certainly didn't look the part of a playoff team um, against Clemson. And, you know, I mean, of course, this has nothing to do with this year's team, but that, but that program's been recent. You know, under um, Brian Kelly, has experienced his fair share of troubles in big games, uh, specifically, you know, in bowl games against Power Five opponents. And um, yeah, I, I don't expect this to be any different. This might be the worst of the worst. Um, you know, they previously got demolished by Alabama by Saban and is Alabama team in a national championship game. Uh, but this might be even worse. You know, I don't I don't see that. Notre Dame's defense, obviously, very talented. You know, been a pretty solid defense for practically the whole season, um, at least up until the ACC championship game. Uh, but I don't think they're going to be able to withstand, you know, Crimson Tide, the Crimson Tide's offensive onslaught what they're going to throw at them. So, yeah, I'm not expecting much of a game here. Uh, I think Notre Dame will will do good just to – will do well if they can just, you know, hang in for a quarter and a half or so. Yeah, I agree. Of the, of the two playoff games, this is the one that I expect to be the most one-sided. And theoretically – Clemson did look a lot better last week, but theoretically at this point, I really don't think there's a team that's going to be able to beat Alabama this year. They just have – you could honestly make the argument, and I love Trevor Lawrence. I personally think Trevor Lawrence is the best quarterback in college football myself, but you could make the argument that the Heisman Trophy could go to any one of the three positions on Alabama. Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, it's it's wild to think that – you know, this might be the the first time since Desmond Howard that we have a wide receiver win the Heisman and Devontae Smith, Alabama star wideout. And, 
you know, I mean, he's a true wide receiver in every sense of the the term. Um, of course, with Howard, he was more of a, you know, he was sort of like a jack-of-all-trades kind of guy who was a, could serve as kind of a flanker, scat-back sort of player and was also a great return man. You know, Smith has dominated all year long um, catching the ball, and obviously Mac Jones has had a great year under center. And, yeah, Najee Harris, who's, you know, kind of got snubbed out of being a, a Heisman finalist. Uh, I think it would have been cool if they had, you know, made it five Heisman finalists to to give Alabama the opportunity to have three Heisman finalists, you know, from the same team. I mean, that's just pretty unprecedented. So, um, but yeah, I mean, you could make the case that like those are the the top three. Those have been the top three players at their position in all of college football this season. Um, and yeah, I I guess you know it looks like at this point Smith is the likeliest to win the Heisman. Um, you know, I, I guess it's really between um, him and Mac Jones at this point. I believe Devontae Smith's the odds-on favorite. But, yeah, I mean, that Alabama offense just seems unstoppable. They seem pretty unstoppable all season. They've clearly been the best team. And, yeah, I don't think it would be it, – it really wouldn't surprise me or probably wouldn't surprise much of anybody if they won both – playoff game you know regard regardless of who they play in the national championship game they win they if they won both playoff games quite comfortably and and you know solidify themselves as as the best of the best so yeah I mean right now that you know it's going to take a lot to slow down that offense and you know be able to keep up with that offense so whoever comes out of the Clemson, Ohio State game. Uh, good luck. And sticking with Notre Dame, we'll get into uh, college basketball now where the Fighting Irish are still, I think, trying to find their footing as a team, especially when it comes to their consistency. Uh, they had that nice win over Kentucky, and then they dropped two games to Duke and Purdue, which – I mean, the score says they lost by 10 points, but the game really wasn't as close as the score showed. They had a night. They had their Syracuse game postponed. Then they had a nice bounce back win against the new program in Division One, Bellarmi. Which, say what you want to say about their team, they're showing that they belong in D1 because they pretty much battled with everybody. And now next on the schedule for Notre Dame is they got number 23 Virginia coming up, and then they potentially have a game at Pittsburgh on Saturday. It all depends since Pittsburgh is having COVID concerns right now. But, I mean, Notre Dame is still kind of just, I think, figuring out who they are as a team. I mean, outside of Prentice Hub, who continues to be a great offensive threat for them, it seems like they're starting to figure out who they are as a team. The consistency just isn't where they want it to be. Yeah, consistency's not there. And, you know, like you said, Bellerman's – really overachieved early on in their D1 tenure. Um, so you can't, you know, you can't necessarily fault Notre Dame for not exactly blowing them out, winning by only 11. But, yeah, they're just, you know, they're finding their way. Um, and this is just going to be how it is for a lot of teams in this strange season is looking to find your footing, you know, early on in conference play and then, settle into a rhythm and hopefully for Notre Dame's sake, 
they just won't have too many scheduling issues and and you know postponements and whatnot. Had obviously had a game against Syracuse that got postponed already. So you know, yeah, hopefully for their sake, they won't have a lot of scheduling changes to disrupt their flow and. Yeah, I mean they can, you know, we can we can see what they're made of with this game at home against Virginia. Um, <clears throat> certainly a winnable game for the Fighting Irish, and uh, you know after they they lost uh, recently, you know got lost pretty handily to Duke and Purdue in the same week. They'll be looking to get back on the right track with a win over a power five opponent, a, a conference opponent in Virginia. And it was nice to see uh, DePaul finally take the floor this week. They had a nice convincing win over Western Illinois to start the season with Javon Freeman Liberty with nine, having 19 points, eight rebounds and six assists. And that was probably a pleasant surprise to see him deliver. And then, they actually played Providence much tougher than I expected them to play. They took them in a double overtime before losing by five, and now they have road trips set for UConn and St. John's this week before getting Villanova. DePaul probably has had to go through the most, I would say, challenges of any team in the country so far this season with their season, I believe, starting later than anybody besides the teams that obviously canceled. And yet it seems like they were very well prepared for the start of the season because they looked actually a, like a pretty good team. To right, start yeah. I mean, you know, I'm just happy that they were able to finally get going. And, uh, yeah, they right off the bat, a good win, a comfortable win over Western Illinois. And then, yeah, took Providence to double overtime in their first big game of the season. So second game overall. So, yeah, that was impressive. I certainly, like you, wasn't expecting them to play that well. The game was at Providence, and they took them to double overtime and, and lost by five. But, you know, a, a great way to open Big East play after it looked like, you know, Big East play might never really come for DePaul. So, uh, you know, good for them. And, yeah, I mean, they, you know, now get to take on UConn and, I think based on what we saw against Providence, that's a winnable game for DePaul. Yeah, and I think if DePaul can even go one and one this week against UConn and St. John's, being that both games are on the road, that should give them a lot of confidence, especially considering how they've had one home game and it was against obviously a lesser opponent, but to go through some of the I'm not going to say premier programs in that conference anymore because UConn and St. John's aren't what they used to be, but still a road game in your, a road game in your conference against any conference opponent is never easy fans or not. And DePaul really did play well at a tough environment. Right. Yeah, for sure. Played, um, you know, played well in a tough environment and, you know, we'll just, we'll look to see what they're made of. And, well, DePaul finally got underway. You have the Northwestern Wildcats who, after obliterating Michigan State on the at home, which I think surprised everybody in the country, they go into uh, Indiana and 
take down the Hoosiers and then took on a, a good Ohio State team and pulled out another great win against Ohio State to move into the top 25 before suffering a fairly good beatdown last night against Iowa. But Northwestern has gotten off to a great start, and I'm, I'm going to be the first to admit that I did not expect Northwestern to be this good of a team this season. I didn't expect them to be able to compete with the top dogs in the Big Ten at any point this season. But given what we've seen the first four or five games in conference play, this Northwestern team very easily could be the most improved team in the Big Ten. Yeah, easily. And, I mean, like you, I mean, you know, I certainly didn't expect them to be anywhere close to this. If they were just somewhat competitive, mildly competitive, you know, an NIT caliber team, I I figured that would be a success. But so far they've overachieved as much as anybody in college basketball. And, yeah, I guess since we were last on air – you know, like you said, the big win. Um, of course, we talked about the, the upset win uh, over a top five Michigan State team at home, and then to go on the road and and win at Indiana, um, and then take down Ohio State in a thriller at home, um, and Boo Booey, you know, one of the best names in college basketball, and their their mm-hmm. star shooter who didn't really play particularly well in that game against Ohio State, but hit the big three-pointer uh, down the stretch to, to help him pull out that win. Yeah, that's a huge win. And then, of course, you know, at Iowa, lost by 15, but I was obviously a Final Four contender and stacked and led by maybe the best player in the country in Luca Garza. So, um, you know, that's an understandable loss. But, yeah, I mean, Northwestern has exceeded all expectations so far and uh, certainly, needless to say, an NCAA tournament contender now. And, you know, those have to keep it going. I mean, the Big Ten is clearly the best conference in the country and just stacked with so many great teams, so many ranked teams, several legitimate Final Four contenders. And, you know, we'll just, uh, we'll see if Northwestern can hang tough. I mean, it's, it's still, you know, so early in in, uh, in the grand scheme of things, so early in the season, especially in the conference season. But, the you know, the Big Ten's rolling along. I mean, they've already played several conference games. All teams have. So um, it, it, the train doesn't stop. And, um, you know, coming up next, another tough test at – number 16 Michigan for Northwestern and needless to say they will have their work cut out for them in that game as well and Illinois uh, they had their loss on the road at Rutgers a couple weeks ago but that proved not to be a uh, bad loss at all because Rutgers continues to pretty much like Northwestern they continue to be a surprising team although not as surprising because Rutgers did have a fairly decent year last year. But since that loss, Illinois has taken care of Penn State. They've taken care of Indiana, and they have Purdue set for this week and before a big comp- a big matchup with Northwestern on the road next week. So that'll be actually a fun game to talk about next week. But Illinois is kind of getting back to the way they were playing at the beginning of the year. Maybe not as good as they were offensively, but at least defensively, they're kind of starting to get back into that early season rhythm that made them so successful. Right. Early. Yeah. I mean, that's that's certainly key. And you know, they're uh, when they're up for it, they're a great defensive 
team and, you know, held Indiana to 60 points. Uh, an Indiana team that's got its fair share of offensive weaponry and, you know, to limit them to 60 points is impressive. And prior to that, they got the big win, um, double-digit win at Penn State. And yeah, I mean, for Indiana, it's it's really just sort of settling back into a groove, you know, and and getting back to, you know, the solid defensive performances that we know they're capable of and saw at times early in the season. And uh, yeah, I mean, coming up, they have a big test at Northwestern. So I think it's fair to say, you know, this time last month, it was you know, it would have been fair to say that the top team in Illinois was definitely the Fighting Illini, but um, the Northwestern Wildcats are making a case for it now. So that will be an interesting matchup coming up on January 7th. And I'm just going to kind of throw this out there as more of like a rhetorical question because neither one of us knows what's ultimately going to happen with the NCAA tournament this year and how they're going to conduct that. But you all, everyone knows that come the NCAA tournament, you have the conference tournaments where if you win the conference tournament, you get the automatic bid and whatnot, which it is what it is. I personally don't like that rule, especially when it comes to like the smaller conferences where you can have a team finish 11 and 17, but because they played three straight games are getting in over a team that may have gone 13 and one during the regular season and finished 25 and seven. But let's just say the NCAA basically says the tournament this year is going to be condensed just to try to make it work with being possibly set at one location. I think they said Indiana was like the location they were looking at and there would be like no conference tournaments or anything like that. And the only teams that would be able to make the tournament would be like the regular season conference champions. Who do you ultimately see coming out of the big 10 as the regular season conference champion? If that was the case for them to represent the tournament. Wow. That's a, that's an interesting hypothetical right now. Um, Well, first of all, let me say if that ends up being the case for how they're going to, you know, decide the tournament field, that's going to be a a bitter disappointment. But, yeah, hopefully we'll have more than just uh, conference champions. But, yeah, I mean, with that being said, you know, you're you're pretty spot on in saying we, we should expect the possibility that, you know, conference tournaments will be done away with. Um you know, if, I mean, heck, the tournament field, for all we know, they might look to expand it um, as, a fo- as opposed to shorten it, you know, and just look to add more teams to give the benefit of the doubt to the teams that had a bunch of, you know, early early season games canceled. But, yeah, a lot of different things are on the table. As far as who I think might get that automatic bid, um, you know, if hypothetically there is no Big Ten tournament, Gosh, that's so tricky. I mean, you know, recently I would have said, um, I would have, I would have definitely said Michigan State. It looked like heading into conference play, Michigan State was um, the best of the best there. You know, at least the most talented, the most set up to make a run to the Final Four. 
but they've gotten off to an 0-3 conference, 0-3 start in conference play, which is uh, incredibly rare for that great program. So if I had to pick at this point in time, goodness, and, and you know, Wisconsin set up very well, uh, but they just got upset by Maryland. If I had to pick at this point in time, I would say Iowa. Um, I think Iowa with all the shooters they have, and like I said previously, you know, the best all-around player and arguably the best all-around college basketball player in Luca Garza, you know, who I – I suppose is the front runner, at least one of the top three front runners for winning the Naismith trophy. Um, yeah, I think they're just really talented, have a lot of great shooters and just great offensive team. Well coached by Fran McCaffrey. And yeah, that's who I would lean towards at this moment in time. I like the Iowa pick, too, mainly because of Garza. And when it comes down to it, if you need – if your team needs to win one game to – whether it's to win a conference championship or if you need to win one game just to make, like, the NCAA tournament, you're going to lean on your best players to carry your team. And Garza has proven to be the best player in the country this year thus far. Obviously, things can change the next couple months, but through the first month and a half of the season right now, there's nobody in the country that's mm-hmm. playing better than what Garza is playing. And if it's a neutral site game or whatever, consider basically at this point, every game is a neutral site game because there's no fans in attendance. But I got to lean on Garza in terms of wanting one player to get the job done. If I was to go based on experience, I would have to give the nod to Wisconsin and Michigan State just because they have the senior leadership, they have the coaching, they've been there, done that. Illinois, I guess you could say, is kind of in the same boat. But I've watched more Big Ten basketball this year than I have in the past, mainly because Duke hasn't played in, it seems like, a month. And a lot of the ACC teams haven't played in what seems like a month just because they keep canceling games on each other. But the team that I really like right now, and I'm going to stick with this pick until the end of the season, and then it might change. But right now, if I could pick one team, I would probably Mm. pick Rutgers. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good pick, and that's a very talented, you know, in a way underrated team because I feel like on a national scale, not a lot of people know about them. And, yeah, I mean, they're, obviously that's, you know, in terms of, of a major conference team, that's one of the worst programs ever. I mean, their, their NCAA tournament experience is incredibly uh, limited in the history of that program. So they're on a mission to get there because they were set up to make it um, back in March, but obviously the tournament got canceled. So they'll definitely be hearing their name called on selection Sunday, this coming March. And, um, yeah, I mean, they, they got a, they got a, a lot of talented players, Ron Harper, Jr. The son of, you know, the, the great bulls guard, Ron Harper. Um, he's really leading, leading the way for that team. And, yeah, there's a, a stacked roster and a team that's really on a mission. Well, those are the main teams that people get to watch on a nightly basis because they get to play on the national level. We do have to give some kudos to the Bradley Braves and kind of how they've started their season. 
yes, they're only six and three, and they haven't played a conference game yet. And if you look at their three losses, though, they lost on the road at Xavier, fifty-one fifty, the second game of the season. Lost to San Diego or San, San Diego State, South Dakota State, eighty-eight eighty-four, which I don't really know what happened in that game. But probably the most impressive game they played was their most recent game, and I know it was a loss for them. But they went into number 14 Missouri at that time and lost 54-53. And Missouri is no slouch of a program. Bradley is kind of one of those mid-major programs that not a lot of people get a chance to watch until like the conference tournament when all their games are on national TV anyways. But Bradley is one of those teams where if they do get into the NCAA tournament, they're going to be one of those famous three versus 14, four versus 13 upsets that always happen and have a good team that I think could possibly make. Yeah. And I mean, one thing that really got going for them is they've won back to back um, Missouri Valley conference tournaments. And, you know, last year they, or this technically this year, last season um, in particular, they won it as a, a series underdog made a run to the final and, and won it won it all and got the automatic berth which to the big dance which obviously never came to fruition so i mean technically they've you know unofficially made back-to-back ncaa tournament appearances now and will be looking to to get a third straight um this coming march but yeah they they've certainly proven to have that that clutch you know tournament pedigree with Brian Wardle as coach and yeah, they'll, you know, they have plenty of talent and um, certainly seem to be more talented, even more talented than last season's team that won the Missouri Valley tournament, like I said. So, you know, yeah, maybe, maybe they can be set up to be a team that, you know, can pull off a big upset. Um, like you said, one of those signature, 413 well i guess the the 512 upsets are really the the signature upsets but they'll probably be looking at more like a 13 or 14 seed if they um go for get a three-peat in the conference tournament but yeah maybe they're you know they could prove to be a team that's set up to to pull it off yeah and well a lot of the college basketball world has finally started to get going and they're seeing a lot of good for the most part. There is uh, some bad news that we got to bring out of the Chicago area, and that it does revolve around the Chicago State basketball program, who has decided to forego the remainder of the season after I believe they started 0-4 or 0-5. So, I mean, it's not like they were going anywhere as a program, but for the seniors that are on the team this year, you just kind of got to feel for them not being able to finish out the year. But that kind of brings me to a question regarding that program, not necessarily – well, I guess you could necessarily say the future of that program. With the NCAA now saying that any transfer can basically play right away, do you think they will allow kids from that Chicago State program to transfer to a different school to finish out the year, especially the seniors just considering how they're not going to have that extra year and that's a real gray area because it's you know in c or in season uh transfers which you know is is never really approved is is something um you know that can they can take place right away but 
uh, that, that you know they can gain eligibility right away. But I, I think that you know the um, the blanket waiver for red shirts uh, for the the extra year of eligibility that is for all winter sport athletes like the NCAA did for fall sports athletes this year and, and spring sports athletes as well. You know, that that's something that will was done with sort of the understanding in mind that you could have programs that, you know, have their seasons turned upside down due to COVID or have to cancel a lot of games or maybe cut the season short. So hopefully a lot of those seniors will get the opportunity to come back next season and, and finish what they started, but yeah, I don't, I don't really, that would be a crazy precedent to set if the NCAA was going to allow, you know, mid season in season transfers to be automatically eligible. But I mean, then again, when you have a program that's just shutting down for the rest of the season, you know, I, I mean, that's pretty unprecedented as well, but um, I think the NCAA will lean on the blanket red shirts, the you know extra year of eligibility, and saying that um, you know that that will make up for Chicago State canceling the rest of his season if any of the players are attempting to red shirt. But yeah, I mean more you know, and not moreover than that, more so than that is is the question of is this going to be something that ends up playing a role throughout the rest of the season. I mean, we saw Duke women's basketball decide to um, end this season, obviously, quite early. Um, And like you said, Chicago State men's basketball as well. So you have to wonder how many other programs will look to do that. And, you know, if that'll be something that really affects the NCAA basketball landscape, the college basketball landscape, you know, as we progress through conference, you know, conference play, uh, hopefully it won't. And hope, you know, I hope as many programs as possible can finish what they started. But, uh, yeah, it'll just be something to keep an eye on and, and just, you know, hope for the best. And we'll get into the NBA now with the Chicago Bulls who got their season going last week. And the home slate of games was – probably not very appealing to Bulls fans. They went 0-3 on the homestand, getting blown out the first two games and then lost to the Golden State Warriors on a couple very controversial calls down the stretch, which after I think the head of officials has reviewed everything, the Bulls actually should have won that game because the Warriors should have got called for a five-second inbound penalty, which would have given the Bulls two free uh, – the Bulls the ball back, and then they would have got free throws to ice the game, but at least they kind of responded with a nice win on the road against the Wizards last night and then have basically another game with the Wizards on the road last night because I know a lot of teams are kind of doing that where they'll face the same team twice at their own venue this year. I mean, it's not the start Bulls fans have hoped for. Uh, there is still a lot of potential with this team, especially offensively. They're scoring much more consistently than what they did under Jim Boylan. Uh, They're consistently getting 110, 120 points a game, which if the Bulls scored 105 points under Mm -hmm. Boylan, it was like time to celebrate because they couldn't score. Uh, Defensively, they do need a lot of work defensively. They did play much better last night against Washington, which is a pleasant sign. 
But I still think Billy Donovan is kind of trying to figure out what his rotations are looking like and, and kind of what he wants to use as a rotation, given that they didn't have a full preseason and a full training camp to figure all that out. But I do like what I've seen from this Bulls team so far. I like what I've seen from Patrick Williams. I've liked what I've seen from Otto Porter and a lot of those players on the bench so far. And Billy Donovan has this team playing tough. I do think the Bulls are going to be one of those teams that are going to be fighting yeah, for that I agree. final spot. And, I mean, the they've East gotten year. progressively better since opening night. You know, lost by 20 to the Hawks. Didn't look too hot. But, you know, and then lost to the Pacers in not so great fashion. But have just sort of gradually stepped up and, and gotten better in certain facets of their game with each passing game. And, you know, like you said, arguably got hosed. Um, late in the Warriors game, but then defeated the Wizards. So, um, yeah, I mean, they've, you know, like I said, just just look progressively better in certain ways. And, yeah, I agree with you. I think a lot of it has to do with Donovan and, and his coaching staff looking to really figure out a rhythm there and, and you know, Donovan trying to settle on a, a rotation with this young team. Um, and yeah, I mean, so far, Pat, you know, even going back to the preseason, obviously, and so far what we've, what we've seen in the regular season, Patrick Williams has been a bright spot. Um, it's fair to say that, you know, he can be looked at as, as being a key playmaker, um, you know, as a rookie from start to finish of the season. And yeah, Otto Porter, who's obviously going to be integral to this team's success. <clears throat> has played well and yeah it's just a matter of settling into a groove and um just remaining competitive like we talked about before just you know hoping to to get one of those final playoff spots in the east and just you know have a shot get get to the nba's version of the big dance Yeah, Patrick Williams, I think, is proving to be one of the steals of the draft so far. I mean, James Wiseman is James Wiseman. You knew what you were going to get out of him. And uh, Leandra, or Lamelo Ball has been playing very well, and you kind of knew what you were going to get out of him. I haven't really seen much of Anthony Edwards, so I don't really know how he's looked. And then last night, last night watching that Wizards game, you had that Denny Avdija, who the Bulls were rumored to be in on, and he played actually phenomenally, phenomenally well last night as well. Uh, he's kind of showing why a lot of people viewed him as a top five pick last year, just given the way he plays as a player and being compared to Luka Doncic in like some aspects, obviously not with the same scoring ability, but just kind of the way he plays. But what I see in Patrick Williams, and obviously this is going to be something that he's going to have to tell us all in like 15 years when he's done playing, but. I see a lot of Kevin Durant in Patrick Williams' games. Obviously, he's not as skilled as Kevin Durant by any measure, but Durant is like one of those guys that he's got height, he's got length, he can stretch the floor, he's a good shooter, and he can kind of match up defensively with any position. Patrick Williams is kind of a smaller version of Kevin Durant where he's got the size where he can match up with post players, he's got the athleticism where he can match up with guards on the outside, and then he's one of those guys that likes to play inside but he also yeah, has I like that comparison um you know certainly he's he's got the well-rounded skill set like you talked about and and that's something that's obviously synonymous with Durant 
he's one of the most well-rounded players in NBA history. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, he's, he's very athletic, um, certainly a playmaker and yeah, he's, you know, quite the physical specimen as well, which obviously is different than Duran, especially, you know, a younger Durant who is, you know, obviously very lean. Um, I mean, Durant's a physical specimen as well in terms of his length, but just in terms of body type, I mean, Williams as is certainly has an athletic body type. He's a big, strong dude. And um, yeah, this, this a freak athlete. I mean, that was what, you know, he made a name for himself as at Florida state and it, it's translating well to the NBA. So, you know, clearly the Bulls front office saw something in him in him that warranted using a top five draft pick on him. And um, so far, so good. Yeah, I, I really like what I see out of him. And I guess the Bulls, I guess you can say, have not been healthy yet. Uh, Thaddeus Young has yet to play a game this year. So he's been dealing with a hamstring injury and whatnot. Uh, Denzel Valentine hasn't been in every game. Archie Diakono hasn't been in every game, but the Bulls are close to being at full strength. I believe they will be at full strength tomorrow against the Wizards. Um, I know Thaddeus Young is supposed to play the next game against Washington, so it just depends on if Donovan's going to use his entire bench or whatnot. But I guess my biggest question mark at this point is revolving around Otto Porter. I know Porter would like to be at the starter, but he has kind of taking over this reserve role because he actually is seeing more minutes than Patrick, Patrick Williams, even though Porter comes off the bench. But I guess the problem I have with putting Porter on the bench as opposed to putting Williams on the bench is Porter Jr. is your highest paid player on this roster at $28 million. Yes, he's in the final year of his contract anyways, but – if the Bulls' plan is to somehow flip him at some point this season, which I expect them to do just to get that $28 million off the books, he's going to need to be playing more than a bench type of role to kind of get a better package. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think in a lot of ways he was looked at as being the staple of this team heading into this season is is sort of the – you know, the linchpin kind of guy, I mean, I think it's fair to say Markinen's got the most upside and arguably the most raw talent. But, yeah, I think Porter was looked at as the, the guy who would sort of lead the way. And, yeah, I mean, you know, so far he's, he's, he's made, you know, an impact in his spots so far this season. But, yeah, I mean, he's going to be – he's going to need to be a guy who's, you know, undisputed – a a starter um for them I, I guess I should have mentioned Zach Levine as well I mean Zach Levine is is I guess really more so the the kind of go-to guy for this team but with Porter yeah second to Levine I mean he's looked at as being sort of the the linchpin of this rotation the veteran guy who can help you know get this team to the postseason uh for the first time in a little while so yeah, he's going to have to make um, a consistent at impact. And, um, yeah, maybe it'll be an, end up being a situation where he's he attracts some interest prior to the trade deadline and, and the Bulls move him for some other pieces. 
And switching over to the Blackhawks just for a brief minute here because the NHL season gets underway in about two weeks. And we kind of already knew that the Blackhawks were in a semi-rebuild mode last year. And now it kind of looks like they're in a full-blown rebuild mode now. Uh, Things have gone from bad to worse for the Blackhawks in basically a matter of 72 hours you had. Kirby Doc, who is basically out for the entire season. He's out four to five months after having surgery and with an already condensed NHL season, there's basically no way that Doc's going to be ready to play. And now news came out yesterday that Jonathan Taves is out indefinitely with an illness. Uh, They have not said if it's COVID related or not. They haven't really specified what, the illness is, but they expect him to not only miss the next couple of weeks, but miss the beginning of the season also. So that's two big blows to a Blackhawks team that is already in rebuild mode and losing those two to start the season. It's not going to bode well. No, I don't it's think not. Early I mean, going the, to Chicago. the Taves situation, like just got hope for the best there. That's sort of a, um, you know, of course, in this weird time, it's always concerning when you hear something about an illness. But, um, yeah, hopefully he'll, you know, get back to to being ready to, you know, play, get back to game shape and be ready to go in the not-too-distant future. But, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the Blackhawks, I guess, or like the Cubs kind of leaned into the rebuild mode uh, faster than we would have liked. But, yeah, I mean, you know, they're they're going to have the odds stacked against them in a lot of ways this season. And the last topic of the day revolves around uh, Major League Soccer. Um, I'm just going to mention this because we don't have to touch base on it at all because this is a couple of years out, but uh, Saturday afternoon slash Sunday morning, uh, Lionel Messi basically said, his biggest dream has always been to play in the MLS. So that kind of shows you that he has visions of coming to the MLS at some point. I believe he's got like two or three years left on his Barcelona contract. So that's not something that is going to happen anytime soon. But the big news actually happened Tuesday morning, Tuesday afternoon. And it kind of, I think, is going to affect not necessarily this season, but more so the next couple of years, especially when you take into consideration that Austin FC is coming in as the 27th team this year. The Charlotte expansion team comes in in 2022, and then St. Louis and Sacramento come in in 2023 as a 29th and 30th franchise. But the MLS has decided they are going to invoke the CBA force majeure for the collective bargaining agreement that was agreed basically in February when right before COVID and everything. And it now looks like that CBA agreement they had in place, they have to actually revoke it and kind of renegotiate everything given how much of a financial hit they took last year. I know the players are not necessarily happy about it, but it's something that has to be done. And I'm just kind of curious to see what the future of major league soccer looks like not only this year, but the next couple of years, especially when you have four right, expansion yeah. teams I mean, that are supposed to come to the league. Really keep an eye on, but you know, this is a league that is is consistently had its eyes on growth and expanding its markets and looking to, you know, win over the 
young American fan base and, and grow this league into being competitive with the, you know, four major sports leagues in America. Um, so, you know, yeah, I mean, you can expect some, some hefty changes to be discussed about taking place in and around major league soccer in the coming years. And that just comes with this rapid expansion that they've, that league's been undergoing and yeah, I mean, they're looking to attract more, you know, major market um, or, uh, you know, noteworthy players um, such as Messi. And of course in years past, they've, they've gotten some veterans from Europe to come and play and, you know, they're just looking to, you know, continue with that trend and maybe get some younger star players from overseas, uh, more interested in MLS as well to make it a competitive top tier soccer league on par or at least close to being on par with some of the major uh, big time soccer leagues in Europe and elsewhere. So um, yeah, it's just a real period of, of substantial growth for MLS right now. Yeah, I agree. Um, that's all the time Cole and I got for you today. Uh, like I said, this will be the final episode that we have in 2020. So we want to wish everyone a safe, happy new year. If you're spending time with family. Just make sure you're doing it safely and just enjoy the time that you have with your family right now. I know I always know this time of year is a big time to spend with family and friends and things have been different this year, especially. So anytime that you can spend together is always a good thing. Yeah, well Cole, said. Do you have anything else you, you want to add before we head off today? And, um, yeah, thankfully this, this crazy year is about to come to an end. All right, man. Talk soon. Awesome. Sounds good. We'll talk next week.